Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. G'day. I hope you're enjoying your summer break. The next couple of weeks will be repeats while I recharge for the investing year in 2024. This episode is from December 2022, and it's with Ed Croft, the founder of Stockopedia. You might have heard Elio and Chris in my weekend watchlist segments. They're now running the Aussie version of Stockopedia, and this is the origin story. Here's hoping 2024 shines brightly on your portfolio. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorised reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. Shares for beginners. We scan the news to find every story that actually it, 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 that agrees with us, and and that is a it's a human trait it's we always search our environment to to confirm that we're right on things we don't look for conflicting ideas and conflicting advice so that was a a huge lesson and and i was very very attached to the fairy tale ending the kind of i think it's known as the narrative fallacy now the fact that stories we all believe in a hollywood ending and we think that that you know a share has got to end up in that closure of the story that we're looking for but it, the reality is messy and it doesn't work like that g'day and welcome back to shares for beginners i'm phil muscatello what are the behavioral biases that hamper the returns of investors does a world-class education and experience in the finance industry inoculate you from getting things wrong to find out more i'm joined today by ed croft from stockopedia to discuss all of this and more G'day, Ed. G'day. Good to see you, Phil. Yeah, thanks for coming here. So Ed's been the steward of the Stockopedia mission since day one with the goal of building a systematic toolkit to solve his own behavioural biases. Ed was an Oxford scholar, graduating with first-class honours before going on to work as an asset manager and private client broker at Goldman Sachs. So tell us about your time at Goldman Sachs. What was your role? 
Well, it was a long time ago. And as you said, I was working in the private clients department and we were really dealing with ultra high net worth individuals being Goldman's. They had that cachet and brand to bring in, uh, you know, very, very wealthy individuals. And I worked in a very small team running up to one and a half to two billion US dollars in uh, private client assets. And it was a mixture of execution-only brokerage for some particularly proactive individuals, and then most of it discretionary. Mm-hmm. So we we invested, you know, they gave us the mandate to invest on their behalf, and so on. So it was it was quite an education. It was on the it was on the equities floor. It was not on the asset management floor back then. So this was f- sort of pre dot com up to dot com uh, when it was particularly. Um, hot in that department and after the dot-com bubble they basically separated it and they split it off from the equities department and uh, merged it into the asset management department and it was all on a commission basis uh, back then which meant that there were some you lived tensions. and died by the sword did you well there were there were definitely tensions in, in that y- y- you were incentivized to deal yeah and that meant you weren't necessarily acting on the best interest at times of the clients which Mm. wasn't something which really sat well with me i have to admit yeah i think that is a bit of a problem in the industry as well you know some of the incentives that uh yeah uh people that ordinary investors come along and trust people but uh, not even thinking about the incentives that are involved exactly that's very true and and i think that happens all across the industry and even today and it's that power of incentives which really drives behavior and it always has and I think that really sowed the seed for me to try and move towards you know more self-reliance and investing and I ended up really if I look back on my journey it's about everything I do now is about trying to sort of develop tools and and information education for private investors or retail investors you might call them here uh, to make their own decisions, to try and be, you know, uh, be able to avoid some of those issues that befall those who become clients of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, of different institutions which may not have their best, best interests at heart. Not to say they all don't. I know some very, very fantastic professionals and fantastic businesses out there. That some do some really people have morals. Absolutely. Like in the industry. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did you read at Oxford? Um, I read chemistry. So I was a, yeah, I was a scientist and I I did a four-year degree and that really made me, uh, I think, deeply on, you know, numeracy and uh, all kinds of analytical ways of measuring and analyzing all kinds of things. And I think that's what I remember. I really don't remember the chemistry now, so don't ask me to read out the periodic table. (laughs) (laughs) I am much more of somebody who just sort of applied that kind of method of thinking to everything I, I did since. So did your experience with science, does that have any bearing in the way that you think about investing? It definitely does. It's a, I began applying more data. I was very attracted to the more data driven side of investing from a, from a young age. And my father got me into investing by leaving me a little tax efficient portfolio to sort of manage on my own. And I, when I started reading, I started reading books on some of the traits of, you know, stock market winners and, and interested in reading around the subject. And I think it wanted to, I had a lot of kind of missteps along the way, and I'm sure I'll talk about some of them later. 
But I always wanted, to, I always bought quite well. I always tried to buy with shares which had a very good set of characteristics on the data. And, and when I was at Goldman's, I was trying to apply some of those principles to the client portfolios, but invariably they wouldn't let me. So, uh, which probably was quite good at that time, given I was so clients, young and no, the naive. wouldn't let you? Or no, 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 my, my, my more seniors. But uh, yeah. it was because you always had to sort of stick to the buy list. You had to stick to what they mandated. And actually that was one of the problems there is that you had were often incentivized to buy what was on the list or to uh, or to you know sell to your clients the things that came with the really fat sales commissions. Um, so I, I think that was, I struggled with that because of my more scientific background. And I think when I left there and moved on to becoming a more full time uh, private investor, I or retail investor, I started applying more of those principles. Gee, that's a caring father. He did not only gave you a portfolio, but a tax-efficient portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, in in the UK, they were called uh, PEPs. They were called personal equity plans, and they've now become what are called the ISAs. I'm sure you have similar here. Individual mm. savings accounts, they're called now, and they're terrific. You, you're able to save a certain amount of cash every year into an ISA, and you you know it's free from it's free from tax. So, you know, the capital gains tax is no is no issue, and that's a a, a great benefit. And actually, it's something that is a bit undervalued by so many investors. Uh, but not having to actually pay, ta- pay those taxes gives you the opportunity to do different kinds of strategies. So, yeah, it was very good of him. And uh, he was always uh, interested in the stock market. And I think that sowed the seed for everything I've done since. Was there anything in your experience at Goldman's that um, contributed to your learning? Well, or was it more <clears throat> of a reaction to what you learned there? I think they gave me a very, very good education in... Yes, financial statements analysis and in how the industry works and how dealing works and dealing floors work and how that client relationship works. And especially, but the big takeaway that I took from it was that they weren't necessarily always acting in the client's best interest. And I I, I will give one example that there was one account that we managed to make a 12% yield on in terms of fees over a 12-month basis. That account was actually a very active account. So he, the client nearly matched the market that year. But it was extraordinary the kind of commission take that happened off that account. And he actually seemed to be okay with it. He was a bright guy because he was getting huge information flow and also getting into a lot of the dot-com you know, hot names that were being floated and so on and so forth. But it, it just, that headwind that, that, that the clients were facing on the fees was really significant. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's the biggest takeaway is that you've got to be super careful on, on fees when, you're, when you have professionals acting on your behalf. Mm. So what was the transition like going to become a private investor? My mother got very unwell and and eventually she had had cancer before and cancer came back. And it was really a personal decision that led to me moving on to go and look after her and then have a real think about my future. And so that was a very, you know, personal time. And I'm very glad it did it and spent time with my siblings and and then moved on and and had a real had to sort of really think about, do I want to go back into the industry or do I want to do something else? And I actually ended up running a family fund for some time and and then really managing on my own uh, personal account as well beyond that. And, you know, having saved up a bit of money from Goldman's and also from my and some inheritance from my mother, I started taking it a lot more seriously. And that obviously went through the dot-com period 
uh, after the dot-com period. And I started building up some pretty significant positions in small caps in the UK market, uh, you know, as, as the market started bottoming uh, after the dot-com bubble. So that was a really kind of pivotal time in, in my life. You had a highly concentrated portfolio at that time. What was it like? You say it was small caps, but was it um, in any particular sector? It was, well, I, I, at the time I didn't realise what a sector-focused bet I was actually making because they weren't in, they were, so I'll tell you, I, I started buying a range of shares in amongst the kind of, as the market started recovering. And I started buying, you know, based on strong traits and characteristics that were, uh, you know, using valuation ratios like the peg ratio so these were generally profitable companies so and but they were they came with a very strong narrative because they were chinese aim shares so the aim market in the uk is is like the junior markets a small cap market and it has much looser listing requirements and it can be a bit wild west and some of the shares on there that i started picking out i started noticing these valuation anomalies on these chinese companies that had listed there with hindsight i now know that why they were listing there but i started buying those up and i uh, had some very very good success in some of these shares uh, there was one called rcg there was another one called renasola and i ended up pyramiding my position up as the prices rose so there's a lot in the literature about the value of pyramiding you you know edge in on positions and companies that you like and then start buying more when they move north and that was a big part of my trading philosophy then and I was pretty disciplined on the way in whenever I was buying but I was starting to make such strong returns in these as it moved through 2004 5 6 7 and I remember actually I remember exactly when it was it was my son my youngest son was born here in Sydney in the North Shore Hospital and I remember that I had had a fantastic year in the markets and I remember running down the beach I was up in the northern beaches somewhere and thinking this is going to be my year 2007 this is all set and I'd had a fantastic run in a couple of shares and one of my shares had become more than 50% of my portfolio and I think the other one was about 25-30% so I had probably 75% of my portfolio in just two names and I had a little tail of other stocks that hadn't done as well and I was convinced those big positions were going to run and run and having that maxim of run your winners sell your losers i wasn't going to let my winners go and that really was the 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 crux of that focus portfolio and i think i drunk a bit from the kool-aid of the literature on investing where there are there are some books which will tell you you, you, you know, or even quotes from Warren Buffett, the diversification is a hedge for ignorance, or you should, uh, you know, own only five stocks and, you know, keep all your eggs in one basket and watch yeah. the basket. And Warren Buffett's got that thing too, where he talks about um, only, what is it, like 30 stocks in your whole life? Something yeah, like, it's some that punch card idea. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And, and of course, you know, I was making fantastic returns in these shares. I really was. It was, it was, it, I'd done extremely well. Um, one of them had quadrupled on my original purchase price and so on. So I was very, very happy with how I'd done. But I didn't realize what was happening to me on the psychological side of owning these shares in such large size. And really, the attachment I had to those positions sort of led to some pretty negative 
negative moments. So that kind of led on to the second part of that story, <laughs> and which another kind of pivotal thing in in my life, which led to setting up Stockopedia and the things I do now. So you started that answer by mentioning the peg ratio. Yeah. What is a peg ratio? So the peg ratio I got particularly interested in from a a great British stock market classic called Jim the Zulu Principle by an author called Jim Slater. And Jim Slater was a great capitalist. He was a great conglomerate capitalist in the 70s. And he eventually actually went, I think he went, might have, might have gone bust in the 80s. But then he made his fortune back writing children's books and then having a column at the Telegraph. And he eventually went on and wrote this fantastic book called The Zulu Principle, which was all about investing in small caps, but using the data to pick really good shares. And uh, Slater's went on and set up Slater Investments, which is now one of the most successful uh, small cap fund managers in, in, in London. He's died now. But he was a big inspiration to, the, to everything I've done, actually. And I, I, I was always a fan of his work. And he really promoted the peg ratio, which was the price earnings to growth ratio. So if most one of the first ratios you learn about is the price to earnings ratio. And that's the price divided by the earnings per share. And it's a very, very simple measure of how expensive a share might be against its earnings. So you kind of find that you know, very expensive shares can be on a PE of 40 to 60 or more, and very cheap shares can be on PE of three to five or even lower. And of course, where, where is your buy point? And it's very contextual to know, you know which, which is the right PE ratio for that stock, because it depends on the growth rate. And you know, a much more a faster growing or higher quality stock would, be, would justify a higher valuation. So you might be willing to buy a share on you know, 30 times earnings or more if it's a really high quality, great growth stock. Um, but if it's not growing, you wouldn't. And one of the th- things that Slater did using the peg ratio is he divided the P ratio by the earnings growth rate. And that kind of normalizes that number because... You know, as I said, if the number can be anywhere between one and 100 or 200 or whatever, how do you know what the what, you know, how do you judge it? So but if you divide by the growth rate, you could then use the peg ratio and say, well, look, if if the value of the peg ratio is one or less, that means the earnings growth is faster than is a higher number than the price earnings ratio. So if you had a, a, a company trading on a price earnings ratio of 20 times, 20 times earnings, but the growth rate was 25% or 30%, that would be the peg ratio would be less than one. And of course, if a company was on a lower PE ratio, it could be on a lower growth growth rate, but the peg ratio could still similarly be below one. And he looked for shares that were on a peg of less than 0.75. And that meant you were buying uh, growth at a reasonable price. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a very powerful idea. And it's always been a very perennial idea for all investors. If you can buy growth at a reasonable price and do that, you know, habitually, you can do well in the market. So, so that's always a principle that I've had in a, a lot of my investing. I, and I always keep an eye on the peg ratio. And uh, we publish it on the site, you know, as one of the key ratios on the, on, the, on the page. So, Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Super is one of the most important investments you'll ever make. But how do you know if you're in the best fund for your situation? Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. Okay, so there you are on the northern beaches of Sydney. You're running down the beach in slow motion with the, the hair ruffling you <laughs> in the wind. And then what happened? Well, the, the, a very, very difficult year because the markets in the UK started dropping and especially in Chinese AIM shares. And the, my two biggest holdings were in this Chinese sector. So it was, you know, it was more of a geographic similarity that the business, the, the business sectors were completely different. You know, one was in sort of electronics, another one in, um, in solar. And, but uh, uh, geographically, the but they were all Chinese. Yeah. And then they started selling off. But at the same time, the Chinese stock market, the Shenzhen and everything were rocketing. They were going higher and higher and higher. And I was thinking to myself, well, mine are going down, but China's going up. Okay, mine are going to go up. And what I realized afterwards was that you couldn't sell China, the Chinese markets inside China. Like they were locked out from international investors. So they were selling Chinese shares everywhere else. And that really was the beginning of, a, of you know, pretty negative runs. So, you know, I was anchored on the prices I was at and, and the highs and, I, and, and the valuations were still very low on those shares. But I was convinced in the narrative of where these would end up. And, and then, of course, the, the rest of the market then topped later that year and started coming down too. So it was like a double whammy. And, and I was just very, very attached. And it, it took me a, a year to really get out of my positions. But by then, my portfolio was down 50% or so. And, and, and thank God I got out when I did. But 50% from the high? Or? Yeah, yeah, it was 50% from the high. And it was a... Yeah, and I, and I really was, I'd started to think that this was my financial freedom. My financial freedom kind of mm. went, went up in smoke when all that started <laughs> happening. So, uh, yeah, it was a huge learning curve and, and, and deeply, deeply disappointing. And, and I was very glad I got out when I did, because actually one of those companies, my biggest position ended up, I think it topped at about 140 pence. And I think I ended up getting out of that one at about 60, 65. And then it eventually went, all the way down to 1p ended up being a fraud ended up being a actual fraud where the ceo disappeared it was a, it was a very strange circumstance and it and it just goes to show that you've got to really really have a lot of trust in the underlying ethics of the business and and often i found that foreign listed companies that come to the london stock exchange on that junior market they're doing it for a reason and i've seen companies from other countries around the world do the same thing and end up being uh, similar not say all of them are at all mm, but you mm. find that there is a it's an odds thing so i learned a big lesson in that okay so that was one lesson was there any other major lesson that you took away from that uh, well it's, it was all really the sort of behavioral uh, aspects of it i i was very very much so the the psycholo psychological biases that we go through in you know becoming very attached to our shares becoming really overconfident i had huge overconfidence i remember telling my wife that my main position was going to quintuple by christmas or something like that and and you 
you, you then search for all the information that confirms your opinion. We scan the news to find every story that actually it, 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 that agrees with us, and and that is a it's a human trait. It, it's we always search our environment to to confirm that we're right on things. We don't look for conflicting ideas and conflicting advice. So that was a a huge lesson, and and I was very very attached to the fairy tale ending. The kind of I think it's known as the narrative fallacy now. The fact that stories we all believe in a Hollywood ending, and we think that that you know, a share has got to end up in that closure of the story that we're looking for. But it, the reality is messy and it doesn't work like that. So these are all kind of behavioral traits that we fall into that tend to make us hang on to shares too long. And 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 then, of course, we, we refuse to sell them at, and, and we lose all our discipline. And I think that's what happened to me. I, I lost my discipline on the sell side. And whereas I always had discipline on the buy side, but the, the sell side discipline was very poor. So what was the process then taking that and the experience and then moving on to founding Stockopedia? At that time, a great friend of mine had been working in private equity, which became a bit unstuck during that deleveraging process. And the two of us started uh, exploring the idea of starting a website uh, to take some of these ideas and, 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 and really try and improve the lot of retail investors in in the UK and hopefully eventually abroad and we looked at trying to find a good data supplier and we built a website most of it was sort of the mechanics of learning to build a website having not done it before and we sort of you know got competitive about trying to learn to code and trying to put something together and patch it all up and and we did that reasonably okay it was a it, it worked it was a gathering interest but I always had this idea of us building a subscription data service because the ones that were available were either only desktop software you had to have on a maybe just a Windows machine or a sort of desktop app, but you there was nothing really very high quality online. And I found that the majority of websites had very poor quality data because they data was always used as clickbait. Mm. And because it's used as clickbait, uh, they don't invest in the quality of the data because they're trying to sell, most financial websites are trying to sell advertising. So they don't really, they want the data there so that people will click around, but they don't live and die by the quality of that data. So I kind and, of, and that data can be very expensive as well to, um, to it, access. It can, it can. And, 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 and it is. And the thing is, that really is a difference. Paying for data makes sense because you know that if you are paying for it with a, you know, okay, I'm talking my own book here, but this is the reason I set up the biz is because we don't, you know, we don't run any advertising. It's all just paid for by our subscribers. But if we don't do a good job on the data, then people won't subscribe because you can get data for free here, there and everywhere, but it's just not high quality enough. So we've wanted to find a way to make it reasonably priced enough so that we could actually attract that clientele and and then yeah one thing led to another and we managed to get a, 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 a find the suppliers who could give us the raw data that we could do our magic on and 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 as that we were going through that process i was going through a complete re-education in what works in investing because i've recognized that a lot of what i'd learned up to date hadn't necessarily been that beneficial for me and i dove straight into you know all the behavioral finance side of it as well as all of the more quantitative academic aspects of investing which is something i hadn't got an education in at when i was in the city and or at goldman's but it's something i self-educated on because you started to find there was just so much 
free publication of academic papers. There are some great stock market classics. And we started weaving all of these key themes and ideas into everything that we, real ethos and foundation of the service as we started building it up. So that was, that was probably one of the best educational, self-educational periods that I've ever been through. And while I was sort of mourning this loss of capital and the terrible, terribly stupid things I'd done with my own money. So anyway, there you go. A big part of it was getting, uh, I saw a mention on your website that you wanted institutional grade information, institutional grade financial data. At the time, what was the difference between what was available to ordinary investors and what the instos had? Well, there were... There were some data suppliers who had been set up just locally in the UK and they had quite mixed quality and they did kind of pre-compute a few financial ratios, but they didn't take all the nuances of financial statements into account. They didn't have the necessarily the granular data required to really carve out the, the, the best quality ratios. Because even if you take a, a peg ratio, there are lots of things that go into that. And there's all kinds of companies will report their earnings in all kinds of different ways. And they have different uh, year end dates and they have all their obviously simple things like different currencies. But they might not take into account that a company has dual listings or A and B shares, which are some of the complexities of how companies list their shares on the market. And you need to really calculate a really valid sort of earnings number, which takes these factors into account to be able to do to appropriately a good job. weight those different yeah, kinds exactly. of factors that are available in there. Yeah. That's just a very simple example, but there's a lot, lot more complex ones. And so we wanted to try and find a very good institutional quality data provider that gave us much more granular financial statements data so that we could make the adjustments necessary to calculate and good sets of fields which could allow us to do valid comparisons against companies because when you're doing comparisons across the market and you're looking more cross-sectionally having being able to compare like for like makes such a difference so part of um the process of putting together stockopedia mm. was looking at some of the academic research that you referred to before yep. and you mentioned factor investing mm. Well, on the website that's mentioned is factor investing. What is factor? Is that the correct yes, factor that, that, investing? Yeah, factor investing. The way to understand that, and that's something we actually labelled it as much later as it became a theme in the industry. But ultimately, the way of thinking about it is that shares are, are driven by certain traits or characteristics that have now sort of become known as factors. But... For example, if you were to take the price earnings ratio, the P ratio we talked about earlier and sort the market from uh, cheapest to most expensive by that by that ratio, and you could then chop up the market into buckets. So say you took five different buckets in increase from the cheapest to the most expensive and then track it as a portfolio over time and find you, you would find if you did that, and then every year you did the same thing and you, you moved the cheapest portfolio into the next set of cheapest stocks a year later because they all change in price individually over the year. And if you track that over time, over the very, very long term, you tend to find that cheaper stocks outperform more expensive stocks. And so that became uh, an idea. One of the most studied ideas was this kind of idea of value investing or that the value factor is a powerful and pervasive and enduring factor in the market. So 
on almost all of these price ratios where you measure valuation. And this is a common theme all around the world. You find that that, that cheap bucket of shares, in, in it, not every year, and in many periods it underperforms, but over the long term, you tend to find that the more inexpensive classes of shares will tend to outperform. So that's kind of the value factor. And then there are other factors. I'll just quickly brief you on them. So the quality factor is looking at the most profitable shares in the market. And again, doing the same thing, sort the market by profitability. And you can look at quality in terms of cash flow, profitability, high margins. Are they, you know, are they self-funding, high return on capital, stable margins, kind of things Warren Buffett really likes. And higher quality shares have a tendency to beat the opposite. I like calling them junk shares, but they're your kind of capital des- destroying companies. So, I, you know, or companies that need a lot of capital constantly to keep going. And you find those sorts of shares, which are always on a whim and a prayer, and they've got a, they've got a story. They always have a story. It's that old saying of, um, you know. Uh, there's a lot of mining stocks in Australia, but that old Mark Twain quote of, you know, what's a, a mine is a hole in the ground with a liar at the top. But, you know, you find that so often in the market, whether it's you're going after a blue sky technology or some significant resource or whatever it is, but they need so much capital to get to that point of positive cash flow. Uh, that's why they're on the, the market, aren't they? They need capital. Exactly, they grow. do need capital, yeah. but it's mm-hmm. a bit of a lottery. Yeah. And you find that those, those types of stocks underperform over the long term. And whereas the high quality ones tend to keep outperforming. And then the last one I kind of focus on is momentum, which is this strange idea that shares that are breaking out or have strong share price strength tend to keep having share price strength. So winning begets winning and the opposite, losing begets losing. And, and they're all, it's, a, it's a strange phenomenon, but if you literally, if you were to buy the sort of top 20 stocks by their highest share price strength over the last 12 and six months and you do that every year you find you tend to outperform and it's a hugely pervasive phenomenon um, that that most people can't really fathom but it's like it's based on behavioral biases so these factors uh, and there are some others like small caps tend to beat big caps and low risk shares tend to beat high risk shares but if there are kind of a canopy of what you might call factors and factor investing and i think this is what i've taken into my investing is that it's less about the individual share like getting consistent returns in the stock market is less about buying the individual story of the share and more about making sure that you're exposed to these factors that you buy stocks that have these characteristics and you're disciplined about it. So the disciplined enactment of a strategy of owning uh, shares that are good quality, uh, that are good value, that are strong momentum, that is the kind of thing which leads to continual, uh, continually positive returns. And and if you lose that discipline, you don't do so well. And so all those things I talked about, my personal issues in the you know financial crisis was all about me breaking those rules. Like I, I got in on I got in on the good factors, you know, they were generally quite good, you know, value and quality shares. I thought they were. But actually what unfolded was that I just fell in love with the story and I lost my discipline. And and I think that's in an essence the idea of factor investing is trying to keep that strong, I call it strong factor exposure. But it means you're 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 gonna let shares go after a year or however long when they no longer have those traits. When they you know, it gives you it embeds that discipline into your process. And I think that's and, and bypass your psychology presumably exactly, as well. Yeah. yeah. And that's a big part of it.
it. You want to bypass people's psychological biases. Definitely. Absolutely. Because, and it is the hardest thing to do because mm. we are all prone, you know, I can't help myself. I mean, mm. I try not to, I try not to learn about the shares I invest in <laughs> because I, 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 I believe now so strongly that, that, that these, this idea of factors is so much more powerful if you want to continually try and beat the market. Of course, if you just want to, if you just want to get to know the companies and the management of the stocks you own and, and you know, people have different motivations in the market. You know, there are, you don't, but I'm, but I'm particularly interested in trying to sort of beat the market. And, and so that's the way that I think it works best. Mm. Tell us about the process of coaching investors. Um, because it's not just about handing out tickers, is it, um, Stockopedia? No. Which is what a lot of people want. <laughs> that's right. I, I, I think it's that ethic of, you know, give a man a fish versus teach a man to fish. You know, if you teach a man to fish, they, they can go and find their fish for life. You just give them fish. They're just dependent on you. And But we wanted to try and educate people about the kinds of characteristics of stocks that historically have done well and and let people go and pick their own shares but with a supporting environment which helped them understand if the shares they were looking at were in that class of shares that historically have done very well so you know again looking at those factors and we rank the market for quality we we have these ranks between zero and 100 for quality value momentum and it gives this fantastic scoring system so that anybody can see oh if it's a 90 plus ranked share that's in the top 10% ranked shares in the market that means you know it's in a segment that historically has outperformed it doesn't mean it, that stock will outperform next year or the year after but it means that you're kind of you know if you're picking shares in it, it, you're not shooting fish in a barrel but you're you're you've got higher odds and that really allows people to have more confidence in their decisions and i think a lot of what we try and do is 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 give um sort of data driven uh product or features which help people have more confidence in their decisions of course everybody knows they're self-reliant diy investor and you know so and i've actually never had really ever had a complaint from someone because they everybody knows that the ethos is that they're making their own decisions we're there as a as a as an aid to that and we give them the data that helps them make fantastic decisions so i think generally the the environment we've created while there's community and there is publishing and there is uh you know we do a lot on, on the educational side but the data is really there as the primary kind of crux and support which helps people make much more kind of guided investment decisions and i think that is i guess the coaching aspect mm. uh rather than uh just giving people giving people tickers as you say so i hope that answers the question Let's move on to Stockopedia in Australia. So Stockopedia is originally UK and based there. Actually, is uh, just before we move on, uh, are you covering stocks from all over the world? Yes, we are. We don't have fully global coverage, although we're planning on extending to that. The, the thing is, most so we do cover the Americas and well, North America, UK, Europe, some of Asia and uh, Australasia, Australia, New Zealand. And we have had that coverage for some time now, but we're thinking about expanding to Latin America and s some of the other regions we don't cover because we actually have the fundamental data. People have a great home bias in their investing. So most people don't want to go and take on other regions uh, unless 
you know, perhaps it's America, you know, everybody, because yeah. everyone's got Google or mm-hmm. you know, Microsoft products or whatever it is. So, but generally, you know, they are, they have a very strong home bias for their investment portfolios. And that's a, a thing that happens all over the world. So yes, we do have uh, other regions and, but I think the UK is our, has been our home, but I guess, cause my, actually my original co-founder is a Kiwi, mm-hmm. very old friend of mine, and I'm married to an Australian. So we always thought, well, Australia would be, this is the one. Yeah. yeah. And then maybe those be able beaches to, to run down. On, <laughs> exactly. On the beaches, yeah. And to be able to get out of uh, the UK in, in winter is, uh, I think, on a consistent basis is a, is a, is a great dream my wife and I have had. Oh, so. That's been a major part of the business plan. <laughs> <has it? laughs> Certainly my wife's aspect of it. Yeah. But no. Um, but yeah, tell us about coming to Australia and Stockopedia's um, place here. Absolutely. So so some people started subscribing from down here. It may have started as expats and, you know, British people down here, but then that started growing. And we thought, well, look, let's take this more seriously. And, and I think earlier in the year, we began, uh, kind of made a commitment and thought, let's try and build a business here and didn't know what was going to happen. And then we led on to meeting Elio and Chris Who's, um, who's lurking in the background just here. That's right. Elio Damato. Being very, very quiet. Say hi, Elio. Hello, everyone. It's very great. It's great to be here. Great discussion. And uh, and, uh, so Elio and Chris Batchelor, who both have great experience of of running similar services in the Aussie market. And we got talking and one thing led to another. And through the year, we gradually started configuring the, the site. So we did quite a lot of development work to try and make it uh, much more better localized for Australian investors. And there's still a little bit to go, but we've made a, a lot of configuration changes on the way that it's represented and especially for how the data is represented. We needed to sort of deal with all kinds of strange decimal place uh, differences of how prices are uh, published here versus the UK. And there's still some more to go, but we'll be continually uh, improving that and based on their feedback as well and then uh, just literally a few weeks ago we signed a partnership agreement and and these guys are taking it on and taking on the challenge of growing it into the aussie market and how can listeners find out more about stockopedia here in australia well if you can just go to stockopedia.com and you'll find lots of information on the site and there's a you know there are free trials of the service and also we have a uh, there's a lot of material available for for reading and download on the on the site, but also there's a chat uh, little chat icon in the bottom bottom right of the page where you can actually sort of you know ask questions. And I know I've just done a webinar with uh, Elio yesterday. Well, today actually, I think, and we are. Uh, that will be available for people to learn more and there'll be other things like that. So it'll be great to do. Ed Croft, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Phil. Great to be here. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. 